Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host Josiah Meyer and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And uh, we're going to conclude our series on missionaries and money, um, talking about is it okay for missionaries to raise support um, and for other people in ministry to raise their support. And this is going to be kind of a grab bag um, appendix kind of to to the this series because I kind of said most of the main things in the last three podcasts. Um, but I had uh, a number of things that, um, well, I just listened to it all. thought, all right, that sounds, that sounds good. But there's a few housekeeping things I wanted to add. Um, and then there's a few, well, there's two sections that I couldn't fit in there anywhere. Uh, one was the dangers of ministry and money. And one was models of ministry and money. So each one of those, I actually recorded a podcast and they got like long and onerous. And uh, I thought, well, let's see if I can try and just, just the basics of these two things. Um, there's always more that can be said, but I'll just try and be concise. Um, so a few things right off the top. Um, there were three motivations for why I want to do this podcast series. Um, first one is that I'm a missionary and so it's part of my life, uh, and I'm actually raising support right now, which is why I'm out here in Saskatchewan. Um, and so it was good for me to be thinking about these things and to really feel, uh, confident that I was doing something biblical and legitimate. Um, so it, it would help me that way. Um, also, um, I feel passionate about providing for my kids uh, and pro- providing for other people's kids. Um, or I want missionaries and pastors to be well-funded so that they can take care of their kids well. And um, so often uh, God, calls, God calls us you know, parents to, work, to, to carry the cross. Uh, and, and we wrestle with that and carry the, you know, make the decision to follow Christ. Um, but the kids didn't sign up for this. And that's, I think, a, a large reason why so many missionary kids, so many pastor's kids, um, grow up and they're bitter against, often not against their parents, but against their church. Um, that's something I've heard more than once that, um, you know, they're just bitter at, you know, they, my church expected so much from dad, sucked so much out of him never saw him, didn't pay him right, what's with that, you know? Um, And so I would like to see uh, a generation of well-funded pastors, well-funded missionaries, not so that they can, like, have a gold Rolex and, you know, fly on a private jet. I mean, I don't think anybody's talking about that. I'm talking about just living a normal middle-class life and being able to, you know, sign your kids up for scouts and go camping in the summer and, and just you know, have a car that won't break down all the time, just kind of like, um, be able to take care of their family legitimately and, and no, no condemnation, no, no guilt trips on churches that can't afford it. Like that's not my point. My point is often we can't afford it. It's just, uh, we, we feel like it's not spiritual. Um, if, if the person in ministry isn't suffering enough, and that's actually something that one guy said to me, um, I was asking him for support and he launched into this long thing about all the missionaries that he had ever seen that had disappointed him and, you know, talking about other people. Oh, I'm not talking about you, not talking about you, but other people. And, and the one thing he said, well, is this, the, is this ministry is this, or is this a vacation or something like that? And, um, so some people really think that if you're in ministry, you should be suffering. And trust me, uh, the suffering comes. Um, if you're a pastor's kid, the suffering comes. The persecution comes. If you're a pastor, if you're a missionary... You don't need to go out there and add stuff. Um, it sucks in a lot of ways. Um, 
my life was has become significantly harder as a full-time missionary uh, than when I was tent making and the pressures and the expectations and, and just feeling all those people staring at you. Um, you know, different times has been really difficult. Um, where was I? So, yeah, that's one of my motivations. Uh, the other motivation is that I feel passionate about the gospel and I want to get it out there. And I think that if we fund the gospel, um, people will, will share the gospel. Um, people will share the gospel whether they have money or not. Uh, I would be preaching the gospel if, if I got paid or not. It's just my influence and my effectiveness would be greatly diminished. Uh, and, um, I mean, if you look in the world, you know, uh, 50 or 70 years ago, there was oil in the Middle East discovered. Uh, and that is a huge reason why Islam is such a global influence. They have money, so they proselytize. Um, and we as well, we have money. And if we, if we invest that money in the kingdom, then the message will get out there. So those are my motivations. Um, I'm in the ministry. Uh, I care about kids. And I want the message to get out there. Um, there's a one thing I mentioned briefly. Uh, I mentioned briefly slavery, um, as I was talking about Anasimus and Philemon, and um, I just lightly mentioned that. And for me, because the issue is kind of dealt with in my own in my own mind, I felt like I could just mention that. When I listened through the podcast again, I thought, hmm, somebody that's just listening to this for the first time, maybe not from a Christian background, might be kind of shocked that I'm talking about slaves and how much it would cost to have a slave. And why didn't Paul say just to free all the slaves, you know? Um, so I want to have a podcast on that, but I, I honestly need to do more research. Um, but briefly, what I would say about slavery in the Bible is that it's not significant, um, historically speaking, that Christians had slaves. It's not significant that Jews had slaves. Um, because everybody had slaves. Um, you know, the ancient Phoenicians had slaves, the ancient Canaanites had slaves, the ancient Egyptians had slaves, the ancient, um, I mean, the, the inhabitants of India, the inhabitants of, of China, Mongolia, South America, North America. Um, not all cultures, but most cultures, um, if they had adequate civilization and, and organization, they would enslave people. Um, and so it, it's not um, it's not surprising that Christians throughout history have had slaves. Everybody, like, if you if you pick a time in history and you say, oh no, Christians had slaves, that's shocking for us because right now we don't have slaves. But if you look at what's going on in the rest of the world at that time, it's not shocking. Um, so don't don't judge a historical epoch against, you know, modern times necessarily, and don't judge in a, a historical epoch against a utopia. What were the valid options in the time? Um, and, and such things like that. What I, what I, what is really historically significant about Christianity and slavery is that Christianity abolished slavery, um, with, uh, oh, what's his name, uh, in the, in the 1800s, I forget his name exactly, um, in, over in England uh, with the abolitionist movement and then that came over to the states caused you know was part of the Civil War it doesn't wasn't the only issue but part of the Civil War and now you know the abolitionist movement from Christianity has spread to the rest of the world um, that's significant and the book of Philemon that I briefly mentioned was actually part of this whole history of um, bringing you know, ending slavery for the world. Then the really interesting question is, why did Christianity end slavery when it seems legitimate in the Bible? 
And so that's a really interesting study that I hope I can get to eventually. Um, when it comes to slavery, I would just encourage you, as a Canadian, as, a, as somebody that's more plugged into international concerns, let's be careful not to let American Christianity define, and American Christianity in the last 100 years, or 200 years, define all of Christendom. Because there are Christians in, in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in Canada. Hey, um, I mean, I have a lot to be proud of as a Canadian uh, when it comes to slavery. I mean, we were the people that were harboring and, and rescuing slaves during that time. So we need to be careful not to let Americans define the entire issue. There, there is certainly an issue about American slavery and people were le legitimizing that with the Bible. and you know, So there, there's things to talk about. Um, but we need to be careful not to let American politics, you know, kind of overwhelm everything else in the world, which they have a way of doing. Um, let's talk about cost. Uh, why does it cost so stinking much to, um, send a missionary overseas? And this is something that, uh, I just recently, it, it, it clicked for me. Uh, it made sense. Um, because when I was raising support to go overseas, um, well, I mean, to put it in real practical terms, for a, a normal family to raise their kids to, you know, feed and clothe their kids and buy a car and things like that, um, you need somewhere around $4,000 a month. Uh, depending where you are, you can live on maybe $3,000, um, If you have benefits, you know, you can live on less. If you don't have benefits, you need a bit more. If you, you know, whatever. But I'm just going to take that number 4000 That's a pretty comfortable amount. Uh, to live on with the family. Um, and most missionaries need upwards of 6000 uh, sometimes significantly more than that, uh, to live. So what what's with this extra, like, um, what is that? An extra 40%. Um, why, do, why do missionaries need so much? And I'm looking right now for a chart that I just made. Um... That's not working out where I am, so that's cool. Um, the obviously there's costs associated with living overseas, um, and you would think, oh yeah, everything's cheaper over there. Um, you can just live in a grass hut, and you know if people are are able physically to do that, that's one thing. But if you have kids and and your wife is a little bit fragile as mine was, you know you need a Western style home. You need climate control, and you need you know so that. You know, it's not true that you can just live on a dollar a day because the Africans are living on a dollar a day. Um, but that's not actually the main cost. The main thing that makes missions expensive is that it's not for profit. And so in a for-profit organization, um, you're getting paid, let's just say, $20 an hour. And um, that all works out, well, maybe $25 an hour if you're a professional, if you're, you know, you went to school and, and now you're a teacher or something like that. So, you know, you can live on $25 an hour. Um as a single income person and, and things like that. And that all works out to around $4,000 a month. We're just going to kind of use that round figure, $4,000 a month. Now, because you're actually making profit for your organization, so you're in sales and you're selling cars, or you're a carpenter and you're building houses, so you're getting paid $25, $25 an hour, but the company is earning $60 an hour off of you. Um, and so, you know, the, the person that's doing the the organization, you know, he's, he's making money. He's, he hired you so that you could make him money. Uh, and, and you're worth the headache even during when there isn't good times and, and bad times, whatever, you're worth the money because 
he can bill 60 hours on your $25, hour, $25 an hour that he's paying you. So some of that obviously goes into his pocket. Some of it goes into you know the shop and, and overhead and things like that and taxes. And some of that uh, is just profit, right? And so from the profit pool, there's because it's a for-profit organization, there's a pool of money there that's profit. And then they pay RRSPs, they pay uh, pension plans, they pay EI, they pay benefits, they pay... Um, Sometimes you'll have like a group insurance plan, group, group, you know, I think I just said benefits, but, you know, a health plan in the States and things like this. Um, as well, if you're going to do travel for work, uh, you're going to, uh, you know, like if, if significant amount of travel is associated with your job, um, you're, you're going to save the receipt and take it to work and say, hey, uh, please pay this for me. Uh, I don't need to drive, you know, all the way to the East Coast and back on my own tab unless, you know, your employer is being very unfair with you. And while you're traveling, your hotels, your meals and stuff like that, within reason, are going to be covered by the company. Uh, as well, if, um, if, if, you're, if you need to buy something for the company, so you, you know, you're, you're a carpenter and uh, you realize, um, well, what, would I really, what we really need is a new flooring machine. So, you, you know, you, you get your boss's permission and you go out and buy a $2,000 machine. Um, so this is going to be covered by the company. You know, you, you're going to supply your own hammer and, and uh, stuff like that. But, you know, the nails, the, you know, the big expensive machinery is going to be supplied by the company. So all this stuff gets, gets paid for out of the profit of the company. And your employer is going to be balancing and thinking about, okay, well, we need this amount of buffer so that we can, we can pay these sorts of expenses. Um, in a not-for-profit... Um, you know, back in the day, you just kind of, we just went over there and uh, didn't think about a lot of these stuff. But speaking of, you know, caring for kids, caring for families, now missions try and, and do benefits so that when you, a kid needs braces, you know, the missionary isn't like, ah, what do I do? Um, there's benefits so that, you know, these, these sorts of things are covered. Um, retirement, people are starting to think about retirement because missionaries that, you know, have been on the field for 40 years, they come back, they have no house, they have no equity. They have no retirement. They have no savings. What do, what do you do as a 70-year-old that's just like, you got nothing? Uh, and so missions are um, requiring their people to put aside, you know, $200 a month into their RRSPs like every normal employer does. So that when you get to the end of your life, you know, uh, you don't have to, you know, you're not stuck. And a lot of missionaries now, like the older generation, like they're just kind of stuck. Um, and it, it's, you know... I, as I was presenting and going around churches and I talked kind of embarrassed about saving up for our retirement through missions, you know, one guy was like, you know what, I'm a pastor of this church, I'm a missionary pastor, uh, this was up on a reserve, and he said, I totally get this because I would like to retire soon, but we have no savings, we have nothing. Uh, and so this is just, you know, good business sense, uh, missions kind of coming around to realizing that they need to take care of their people and need to take care of their kids and need to think about the future. But the big picture is all these things, the, the ministry expenses, the travel expenses, the EI payments that you are required by law to pay you know, into the EI plan, the pension plan, um, and, and then the group life insurance plans that, that, that um, you know, in case a missionary dies overseas, you know, you have a plan and because everybody's paying into it, it's cheaper, you get reasonable rates. Um, all this stuff uh, that would normally be covered by the employer 
the missionary needs to raise all this money. And that's where the extra, for us, it's about 41% of our salary goes to all this other stuff. Uh, and a big part of it is deputation. I went on a trip, you know, bought a plane ticket, driving around in a rented car. Um, this all, I need to raise money for this so that I have the ability to do this so that, yeah, it's, so that people will continue to support us. Um, and all this stuff, you know, it costs money. So I hope that that helps to clear things up a little bit. Um, I, I'm not sure if my supporters will hear this, but I, I think this sort of thing needs to be talked about. And I hope that it helps other people as they're thinking about raising support, thinking about how to present it. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, like back in the day, it was so much cheaper and the missionaries just went out without, uh, worrying about the future, without life insurance, without, um, you know, benefits and, and that's the, that's the real missionaries, you know, and, and today's missionaries, you know, they're so weak and, and it's not really the same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, when you read the published stories, the, the David Livingston and the Amy Carmichael and stuff like that, you know, you really think, ah, oh, these guys are really awesome people. The stories that aren't published, um, but you, that you start to hear about when you get into the circles and you start rubbing shoulders with people and you hear the inside story is often of tremendous struggle and sacrifice of the kids and the wife. And, you know, I mean, honestly, a lot of those guys went over there. They didn't have all their ducks in a row and they died within weeks. You know, that, that's the honest truth of it. Um, and I, I try and keep an even keel when people say things like this to me. But honestly, it's like, you know, we went over there. Our mission did research. They knew the diseases that were there. They made sure we got the immunizations. They made sure we had our our malarone so we wouldn't get malaria. Um, and they kept us safe and healthy. And that all costs money. Um, and I appreciate that. And and it comes down to keeping our kids safe and, ha- and healthy. Um, and giving them a rich and rewarding experience. So um, I don't really know how you can be against that unless you don't want that for yourself. Again, priesthood of all believers. If you're asking it for missionaries, is this how you're willing to live yourself? No insurance, no... Uh, no savings, no retirement, just, you know, live on the bare basics. Anyways, probably belabored that point enough. Um, let's talk about ministry models briefly. Um, there's basically two ways of doing it, and I've kind of used these terms, and uh, either there's tent making where you're working and providing for yourself, or there's, um, there's support-based, where uh, as Jesus was, as the apostles were, as Paul was, sometimes you're full-time in the ministry and people are paying for you to work. Um, before I go there, I want to talk just briefly about ministry hurt. And I'd like to do a podcast on ministry hurt because um, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's it's fascinating in a grotesque sort of way, maybe. I don't know. It's fast. I find it fascinating in the same way that some people might get fascinated by like AIDS or Ebola. Like, how does this kill people so fast? Um, I get fascinated by the fact that um, when you're looking at psychological problems, usually, or or emotional problems, usually it goes back to the parents. Um, and our you know parents try their best, but they don't get it right all the time. And if you ask, if you if you do counseling with people and you try and figure out why people are how they are, usually it gets back to something that was said either by parents or by formative people in childhood or in ministry. And it seems like ministry has a way of cutting right down to the bone. Um, and it's it it people are vulnerable. 
which is why, um, you know, be gentle to your pastor. If you need to critique him on how he's preaching, then do so. But don't just, like, unload on him. Uh, you have no idea how deep words can cut in ministry. I think it's something about how, you know, it's you just put your whole heart and soul into ministry and it connects deeply to who you are. Um, but this relates to our issue because um, tent-making people often feel and sometimes are made to feel that they're not they're not true pastors they're not true missionaries they're not they're not the real deal the real deal is the full-time people and sometimes although far less often the the tent makers look down their noses at people in full-time ministry and say oh ha ha well I work and, and you have to beg for your money um, so we need to be really careful with that and and um, if I have ever said anything to anybody about that I feel like I'm better than them because I'm in full-time, I would repent and dust and ashes talk to me. I will I will be so sorry that I say anything like that. Um, we need to be nice to one another. We need both. Uh, I briefly mentioned that, you know, overseas missions um, could not happen on a tent-making model. Uh, there's no way that I could have done, I mean, there's no way I could have gone to Africa tried to be a teacher in a place where uh, the going wage was a dollar an hour uh, and our needs, again, thinking about the f- extra 40% for, you know, benefits and things like that, uh, and EI and, and pension plans and things that were required by law to pay, and plane tickets and everything. Like, how could I go over to Africa and and try and work enough to, um, to pay for $6,000 a month um, so that I had time on the side, and then try and have time on the side to to do ministry. I mean, it's it's ludicrous. Um, it, it's honestly ludicrous to require your own pastor. Uh, again, if if you're in a small church situation, that's all you can do. Cool. Um, but overseas missions would not be what it is today. Um, global Christianity would not be the way it is today if it wasn't for full time ministry. So we, but at the same time, home based like the church globally would not be able to keep going like like without tent making model without people that are working and also in ministry we need both we really really need both and we need to care for one another and we need to be careful not to um, find our sense of identity in comparing ourselves to others and saying I'm better than you uh, I have a sermon on comparison in my sermons podcast and uh, I'd encourage you to go listen to that if you want to hear more about that um so we need both tent making i I had a whole podcast on this and i went over and over but basically i mean either you got a job or you're independently wealthy i mean if you have a role of apartment buildings sure i mean you you don't need to raise support because the rent from that is is paying so you have time freed up or if you have a good job um you you can work and then you also have time on the side if you're only looking at you know, a relatively small investment of time, then it's something you can work around just about any job. And uh, this is the sort of thing that honestly keeps churches alive. And um, often, you know, pastors come and go, but the core members of the church, like whether it's a deacon or one of the pastors, um, become kind of the anchor point or the foundation of the church and are super essential and necessary. So definitely an awesome way to do ministry. Although limited, I mean, um, not everybody has a job that has free time, and there's not every ministry you can do. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of the places that need it the most 
are the hardest to be places to get a job because that's where everybody wants to live or that's where there's a bunch of immigrants that are um, that are all living there, all looking for work at the same time. Um, and so if you want to, or your you know campus ministry, like what I'm doing, um, it's just silly to show up and expect uh, the campus, the, the students to try and pay you know for me or it would be impractical for me to be looking for a job in my town because it's a college town. The market is flooded with college kids that, you know, go there for school and then they want to stay there because they like the place and they're looking for jobs. And it's just... Anyways, uh, we need both. Um, I think I said that. Um, you can also do, you know, a private sponsor. Often parents become the private sponsor of a kid uh, to enable them to do ministry when they're young which is cool, That's we need that too. There's pros and cons to all of these. Um, or you can be on support. And there's two basic ways of being, well, three basic ways of being on support. Either uh, you raise your own support, which we do, or else you get hired by a company or by a, a mission, and they raise support, and then they pay you. And so it's a salary Or you can thing. do faith-based, which is kind of the George Mueller thing that we've talked about already. Pros of uh, salary-based is that it frees people up because honestly, it takes about thirty percent of my effective time just raising support. Um, and I need to make trips. I need to, you know, I need to continually be updating our blog, which I don't do very good these days. I need to be doing newsletters and things like that. So if um, if the mission is able to raise support and then just hire you, then you can just do your job full time, which is awesome. Um, the the cons of that are. Um, Sometimes it can lead to an attitude of entitlement. Sometimes it can lead to uh, people that... Um, there's just less accountability. Um, and I've heard people say, and I, like I'm not part of this sort of a situation, but I, or I'm, like this isn't the way that my mission does things, so I don't have first-hand experience, but I've heard people in, in, in this model say that sometimes people stick around a lot longer than they ought to because they have a convenient situation and because sometimes when you're in ministry for a long time there's nothing else you can do uh, which is why I always hold on to my truck driving license I can always get a job as a truck driver if I need to but some people you know they get to 50 they're done with ministry uh, they're sick they're burnt out um, and they just kind of stick around uh, and, and t use up the resources when they're not actually doing the work so that that can be a danger of the pool system um, support raising Obviously, uh, there's benefits as far as you have a lot more accountability, like way too much accountability, um, probably. Uh, you, you feel like you're on performance, which is kind of a con. Uh, you feel like you need to give results to people and, and that they need to, you need to get people to approve. Um, but it's, and I think it's probably the most effective method. Um, the big, big con is there's a huge barrier of entry. Um, it is really, really, really hard to get started in, in support raising ministry. Uh, we had fortunately savings saved up. Um, we were going to buy, you know, we, we were saving up for a new car and we just used all those savings, um, to raise our support. Fortunately, we were able to uh, raise our support quickly, but in between there, we're trying to juggle job support, um, doing some ministry on the side, doing family, uh, it's really, really tough uh, to do that. Uh, once you're on support, then you, once you have money coming in, 
you can kind of write off business expenses. You can say, well, you know, we traveled over here, so you, you charge your ministry account for the gas and, for, and stuff like that. But when you don't have any money at all in the ministry account, you can't charge, you know, it's a non-profit organization, so it's not like head office is going to pay you to, to travel around and, and ask for support. So it, there's a huge barrier of entry, um, and a lot of people, like we've, I think I mentioned already, like we know three people in the last four years that have started, worked hard at it, and then, you know, they had to, after a year or two, just say, okay, we, we didn't make it. Our personal resources are completely depleted. Um, and they, you know, have to quit and go back and, and try and rebuild their lives with no savings, sometimes significantly in debt. Um, so there's a real con as far as that goes as well. The being in the public eye, feeling like people are judging you, evaluating you. If you're already a people pleaser like I am, that can get really difficult and that's something that you know I've had counseling for and it has really helped um, and our, our supporters are really great um, they really it's mostly been in my head that I felt like people are, are judging me and, and feeling like I'm not working hard enough or whatever uh, that hasn't actually nobody's actually said that and they've they've appreciated the, the work that we do um, so those are kind of the different models let's talk about some dangers of ministry and money because the Bible has a lot to say about um, about money and about there are dangers uh, when it comes to supporting people and this this series wouldn't be complete if I didn't I told you where the gas pedal is let's talk briefly about where the brakes are and uh, as I mentioned I already recorded this and it took me 40 minutes to do the dangers of ministry and money I'm gonna try hard to get it done in about 15 or 20 minutes um, so I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is leave you with Bible references and you can go research more if you'd like. Um, first and absolutely most importantly, uh, the gift of God should be free. Nobody should ever feel like they need to pay to hear the gospel. They need to pay to be baptized. They need to pay to go to church. They need to pay. That, that should never be an issue. Um, I get this from the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5 where Naaman was healed and um, he tried to pay... Uh, Elisha for for the miracle and Elisha said far be it from me uh, to receive money from you in this situation and his servant Gehazi chased after um, Naaman and said oh his my master changed his mind actually give me money and um, Elisha actually cursed not only him but his entire uh, lineage with leprosy uh, because of that sin of of requiring money, requiring pay for the miracle of God, the free gift of God. Um, even more clearly, Acts 8.20, uh, there was a magician that was impressing people with his magical powers, uh, probably, you know, fake powers, um, trickery, and then he saw the apostles doing real miracles with the Holy Spirit. And so he offered, well, he says he got saved, he, he received the gospel, and then he asked uh, Peter to uh, put his hands on him and, and anoint him with the Holy Spirit, and he offered him money for this. And uh, Peter strongly condemned him. In fact, he said he was headed for hell and his heart was not right and everything like this. This is Acts 8.20. Um, because he tried to obtain with money the free gift of God. And this is why um, in the Middle Ages they talked about simony, which was the sin of charging for um, the free gift of God. Uh, or I should have said it in the Reformation. This was one of their main beefs with the Catholic Church is that if you want to take communion, if you want to go to church, if you want to 
you know, have holy water sprinkled on you, you know, whatever. Everything was a charge with a Catholic church. So if you're poor, uh, you couldn't be as holy as if you were rich. And this was also a big problem with the temple system and why Jesus overturned the money changers temp, uh, tables because they were charging exorbitant rates for, for the animals. And the whole point of, um, like in the Old Testament, yeah, if you got the money, you offer a cow for your sins. If you don't have the money, you offer a dove or a pigeon. Um, it wasn't about the size of the animal, it was about your heart. And so, but then what they would do is they would charge, you had to get a pigeon from the temple, and they would charge an exorbitant rate for the, the pigeon to where it's five times more, and so it's, it becomes a hindrance to people. Um, so the, the gift of God should be free. And uh, this is why, but at the same time, that doesn't erase what we said before about people need to be supported in their work. And so there's some creativity um, that's always been part of this. How do we pay our pastor without new people coming into the church and feeling like they need to pay and, and the money is kind of a, a hindrance to them coming into the church? And this is why, sorry about the background noise there, somebody's got a loud vehicle. Um, this is why uh, we do communion plates or offering plates. There's often a, a, bo a box in the back of the church. Uh, we don't charge for pews as evangelicals. We don't uh, send around a letter uh, demanding you know, that, that you pay for the upkeep of the church or whatever, um, as, as the Catholic Church does and other churches do. Um, we want to make sure that and even when we send around the offering plate, often pastors will say, look, if you're new here, if you're just visiting, if you're checking it out, this isn't for you. This is for the regular members of our church. Um, so we need to make sure that it's free and nobody feels like they need to pay a fee for, for the pastor to come pray with them or visit their, their grandma as she's dying in the hospital or whatever. Um, as well, and we've mentioned this a few times, um, we need to, to guard against the idea of having a priestly class and uh, in Roman, in Revelations 1, 6, and 5, 10, it very explicitly says, you're a nation of priests, a kingdom of, uh, of priests for our God. And so all priests, all, all believers are priests. Uh, we're all in the, we're all on mission. We're all, um, we're all pastors in the, in the sense that nobody's off the hook for sharing the gospel. And there shouldn't be some, well, I mean, honestly, the Catholic Church really does believe that there's priests and then there's laity. There's the special people that are they're in the ministry, and then there's the normal people that aren't in the ministry. And this was something that the Reformation, coming back to Scripture, saw no. The, the priestly class was abolished in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, everybody, um, as it says, as as Peter said in um, in his sermon on in Pentecost, was it Acts 3, maybe, um, quoting Joel, that your sons and daughters will... will um, dream dreams and your old men will uh, see visions. I forget exactly how the verse goes, but the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all mankind. So not just special people get the Holy Spirit, but everybody in the church gets the Holy Spirit. And everybody's on mission. Uh, and so this needs to bring a sense of equality to people. Um, yes, okay, so so Mr. Pastor has a great gift of teaching, so we want to support him so that he can teach full time. That's great. That, that, but that doesn't mean he's a special person and that um, whether he's teaching or not or whatever, he's always going to be, you know, a priest and we're always going to support him. Um, and, and, you know, once you're, once you're a priest in the Catholic system, you're a priest for life and, you know, you're supported by the Catholic Church. Um, whereas we would, we would see, you know, if, if, 
it's usually a seasonal thing. You know, you feel the call and, and you serve God as a missionary or a pastor or whatever for three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. And then you do something else. Um, or maybe you retire or whatever. Um, but there, there's not a division in class. There's not a special group of people that always need to be supported. Um, and you could see, well, I mean, honestly, I don't want to be anti-Catholic or critical of the Catholic Church, but you can kind of see the abuses of the system when, you know, people are, are clearly living in sin, clearly have issues, uh, and instead of, you know, being ejected from the Catholic Church or said, look, go f go get a job. I mean, you're you're sinning, you're, you're breaking laws, you're... Um, go get a job, uh, you're fired. Um, priests, I don't think, can really get fired unless they really mess up. Um, and so, uh, um, yeah, no priestly class. Number three, greed is a motivation for ministry. And uh, Paul talked a lot about this in the Timothys. Um, and he talked about uh, some people that had a lot of things wrong with them. Um, as far as being uh, focused on controversial questions and um, just preaching uh, to impress other people, to tickle ears. Um, and part of this was greed, um, wanting to get rich as a pastor. And certainly in America and in the current situation, it is possible to get rich as a pastor. Um, and... I mean, to a certain extent, that's fine. You know, if you write a best-selling book, if you write The Prayer of Jabez or The Purpose-Driven Life or whatever, I mean, if it's a good book, um, I mean, I'm not meaning... I know both of those books have controversies around them. I'm not trying to say that they're good or bad or whatever. But if you write a good book for God and it goes viral and, and people buy it, I mean, that's your money. You earned it. You know, go spend it. Be happy. Um, but if you're going into ministry with the purpose of um, getting rich... Um, then you're not qualified for ministry because First Timothy six three to five says, or is it? That was no. Is First Timothy one of the Timothy's three three, First uh, or Second Timothy three three? Um, I have confusing handwriting and notes here. I do apologize. Says that you know, um, if somebody aspires to the office of of deacon or leader in the church, it's a good thing they aspire to. Um, they should be the husband of one wife. They should be temperate. They should not be addicted to alcohol, and they should not be greedy. Um, if you, if you're listening to this, and, and you're a young person, perhaps, and you know that one of your life goals is to be a millionaire by the time you're forty, or by, by the time you're thirty, that's cool. You go do that. Uh, you go be a millionaire. Um, you know, honor God with the first fruits of your life. But you know, create an invention, build a company, be an entrepreneur. There's nothing wrong with making money. Um, but if that's your heart is, is to make money, then the ministry is not the place for you. Um, I'm just speaking honestly, get a job, uh, don't be in ministry. Um, because greed leads to bad teaching. Uh, and this is kind of the link that you, you will make if you study false teachers in, in Timothy, first and second Timothy is that, you know, if you're trying to make money talking about sin and hell and the wrath of God and the holiness of God is not really going to get you a book deal. Um, it's, it's, I mean, give you this example. Like, I'm on Twitter, and I tweet stuff all the time. I tweet stuff all the time about, you know, post-modernity, about, about um, apologetics, about absolute truth. And, you know, like, every once in a while I get a share. And um, I posted something, you know, there's a verse about... Uh, 
Um, God has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. And I, I wrote something uncharacteristic of myself that sounded, that was like, God has predestined you for success, so walk in the victory of, of the Lord. And then I, I had that verse, you know, which is true. Like, you know, it was encouraging for me as I read that verse again. I thought about it. It's like, God has already decided that I will work, you know, and I'll be out in 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 Quebec and I'll be doing what I'm doing and he's already decided you know what I'm going to do and whatever I do because he's decided it will be successful um, in the sense that I'll do what he's told me to do um, that little tweet got like so many shares so many likes passed around and, and like I mean that's tempting you know like maybe I could write another one kind of like that you know and maybe I could write a book about how God wants to bless you and God loves you and and you know that wouldn't necessarily be bad, but if that's all that you're preaching, and if if somehow you're getting paid when you do twi- tweets like that, but you don't get paid when you talk about you know absolute truth and and justice and and things like this, you can see where greed can really turn people off to the to the left um, and be a real danger. So greed should never be a motivation for ministry. I've talked briefly about laziness and entitlement. Um, it. It can be something that happens. Um, you get a, a cushy pastoral job. You kind of coast on through. Nobody's really critiquing you. You're not really investing. You're not really out there in the community. You're just kind of showing up every Sunday preaching. You know, kind of la-di-da. Um, it, it, it can be a danger to just kind of feel like, I'm just going to coast. Um, I'm not going to work hard. I don't want you to go and judge your pastor and and uh, feel negative about him, but it's something that happens. And in the uh, in the situation of the pool system where everybody gets employed by the central mission, um, there's there comes a time and a place when you need to cut people off because they're they're just simply not working hard enough, or or they're not working and and you know they're they're kind of freeloading off the system. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 13 talks about if somebody will not work, they should not eat. And um, this was talking about the pool system. In, and I, I realized I made a mistake because um, as I was researching, I was podcasting and something I said, I didn't. when I did more research, I realized it wasn't quite accurate. I said that the communal system that happened at in uh, you know Acts 2 and 3 wasn't replicated in the rest of the church. Actually, it was. Um, and you can see that as you look at, at money passages in the rest of, of the epistles, that uh, at least for widows and probably for other um, people as well, they, they had some communal living, they, they pooled their resources, which is why when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, he had to address the issue of people saying, yeah, I'm in ministry, you know, I'm not working, feed me, and showing up to the table when he said all they're doing is being busybodies. They're going around, they're they're chirping, they're... They're on Facebook, they're Twittering, whatever they're doing. But they're not actually, like, doing ministry. And so he says, if if they're not willing to work, then they shouldn't eat either. Uh, and that is certainly a principle that needs to apply today, too. As well, 1 Timothy, 3, um, 1 Timothy 5, 3-7 talks about widows. And part of, one of the main benefactors of the pool system was the widows. But he said, look, if, if you're a 22-year-old attractive w- widow... Um, go get married again uh, because young widows have a tendency in his experience to, um, you know, again, be kind of busybodies, be gossips, be not involved in the ministry, but to use this this free time to, to do un, unproductive things. 
by contrast, he said a true widow, the, the, the sort of person we want to be supporting is somebody that honestly has no family around to support them. And secondly, um, is somebody that's devoting themselves to prayer and to fasting. And that is, you know, a wise older lady that, as it says in Titus 3, 3, I believe, um, the older woman should pass on or should train the younger woman, teach them to love their wives, their husbands and their kids. And, um, so even though the widows are being supported because they need it, there's also an expectation that they're in their own way going to be praying, mentoring, uh, caring for the church as well. Nobody gets off the hook. Everybody needs to work if they want to eat. Um, so laziness and entitlement should have no place. That being said, um, missions is tough work. Pastoring is tough work. And people need breaks and people need sabbaticals and people need time off and people need time to go to retreat centers and, and do ministry detox and do counseling and, and don't ever... And that's something that we need to support and we need to care for people that way. Okay, the last thing we need to talk about is is um, the really bad stuff. Um, I have the category here called fleecing the sheep. So Ezekiel 34, 1-10 talks about um, the woe to you, I am against the shepherds of Israel. And you can just read that passage for yourself. Ezekiel 34, 1-10 talks about um, a really bad situation where the leaders in the church or the leaders in the temple system were looking out for number one but they they weren't they didn't care about the sheep and they were lording it over them as though they were some sort of ruling class and this really describes the the second temple judaism that actually got established that nehemiah set into place but and he made sure that the tithes were headed their way and that you know they'd be supported but the trajectory of that led towards a lot of abuses to where you know the high priests were you know, by Jesus' time, they were, um, you know, charging way too much for stuff. And then, well, they were charging it all when it was supposed to be, you know, farmers were supposed to bring their, their animals, which was going to be a natural extension of, of their lives, not sell their animals, get money, then spend a lot of money to buy an animal at the temple. Um, and, uh, and, even though there was a priestly class, it seems as though, and certainly when you look at Jesus, what he says about what it means to be a leader, um, if, you know, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am, if I, your teacher and Lord, have done this to you, have washed your feet, have served you, then go and do likewise. And Jesus said, I, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served. When you look at what Jesus, how Jesus led, um, this is the ideal for how the priestly system was supposed to be in the Old Testament. Um, it was never supposed to be a thing where the priests are this special class of people that look down their noses on other people and ex you know, can demand money and can exert uh, political influence and, and can throw people in prison if they don't pay their bills and things like this. Um, and Jesus talks about them stealing uh, widows' houses um, to pay for the, the temple system and things like that. It's hard to say if there's a contemporary equivalent to this sort of thing. I thought about it honestly hard. Um, this is the sort of thing that the world paints the church with, like the kind of brush that, you know, people assume that this sort of thing is going on in the church. I've been in the church all my life. I really honestly haven't seen this very much. I have seen some really abusive, really controlling churches, which fit some of that. But even those churches, honestly, finances doesn't... It's... Finances doesn't enter into it too much, usually. Um, people are still free to 
you know, they pay their tithe, but, you know, the pastor is still, he might be micromanaging and controlling people, but he's, he's not, like, filthy rich. Um, there's a possibility that this, this applies pretty clearly to some real health and wealth false teachers where, um, you know, they're, they're teaching that if you want to be wealthy, give to God and then God will give you money back in abundance, you know, pressed down, overflowing and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and they, they demand large amounts of money and then they live well and the people, you know, don't. Um, and, and in some cases, you know, I've, I've even heard of uh, health and wealth teachers going to Africa. And instead of, I mean, you know, if you go to Africa, like, show up with money. And when you leave, you shouldn't have money. Um, you know, give it to the church. Give it to good organizations so that they can make life better. But um, these people would show up and they teach that, you know, if you give money to me, then God's going to bless you. You're going to get rich. And then they'd leave with, like, you know, basically robbing people with this false gospel. Uh, deplorable, uh, terrible uh, situation, which really, I mean, stealing widows' homes and, and um, things like this, that, 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 that would apply uh, to this uh, fleecing the sheep kind of a situation that we had in the Old Testament. So, again, the five potential abuses are simony or charging for the free gift of God, a priestly class that feels like they should be supported no matter what, uh, greed is a motivation for ministry, um, uh, laziness or an entitlement, something we need to watch out for, and fleecing the sheep, just extreme extortion and, and a feeling of superiority. Really, the fleecing the sheep includes all the others. Um, it, it includes charging for God's gift, it includes a priestly class, usually in, includes greed, and it includes often laziness and self-entitlement. Uh, so those are things to watch out for in ministry. All right, I um, listened through it, and uh, I, the wonder and, and the beauty of podcasting is that it's really hard to go back and edit and add stuff, so I'm just going to add a bunch of stuff at the end. Um, one thing I forgot to mention about the pool system versus raising your own support, um, it can lead to hard feelings, and you might have already picked some of that up just in how I talked about uh, the pool system. I mean, if you're, you feel like you're doing your best and somebody comes along and says, hey, you're not working hard enough, uh, you're fired. I mean, that's got to hurt. That's, that's rough. Um, if you raise your own support, um, yeah, you're accountable to your supporters. But um, there isn't the same sense of, you know, one person's working harder than the other. And I mean, actually, this probably leads more to, might lead more to workaholism as far as people feeling like, hey, you're not working as hard as me, or I need to work harder than so-and-so, and so-and-so's, you know, overworking too. So you just don't have that communal, that that fairness question. You don't have the fairness question as much. Um, also, uh, there was somebody that really shared his heart, uh, like, I mean, Quebec is a mission field, right? And somebody was up, and they were part of the pool system, and they were getting support, you know, for, through their mission. And somebody working right alongside of him in tent-making ministry said, hey, how do I get in, how do I get tapped into this money? And the answer is it's a long and complicated process to get tapped into the money. And again, kind of the fairness question comes up, like, well, I'm doing the same work you are. Why don't I get get paid the same? Uh, whereas if you raise your own support, the answer is, well, you know, we, we are happy to, you know, the, our mission is happy to, to channel your support. Just go get it yourself. Um, and so it, the fairness question doesn't come up as much in support raising ministry uh, as it does in the pool system. Again, pros and cons, right? 
we would love to be on the pool system so we wouldn't have to uh, uh, invest so much time into uh, support raising. Uh, as well, I mentioned briefly, and sorry for the clumsy edit, um, I mentioned because on the original go-round I said there's there's three ways of, of doing support raising. One is raising your support. The other one is the pool system being employed by your um, by your mission. And the third one is what we would call faith-based. And this is, there's different ways of doing it. Um, some, I'll, I'll break it down maybe simplistically into two categories. And you might kind of guess where I'm coming from with this. But I mean, I think there's kind of real faith-based ministry and there's kind of um, fake faith-based ministry. Real faith-based ministry is where you're a hardliner like George Mueller. You don't share your numbers. You don't, you don't ask for money. You just get on your knees and you pray. Um, and I got friends that do that and certainly that have done that and that have incredible stories about money showing up on their, you know, under their windshield wiper, like, um, their gas tank not being empty over like thousands of kilometers and, and, you know, God can show up. God does miracles. God works. Um, and, I mean, maybe this is just my lack of faith, but the times that I have seen this sort of thing work well, it's been single guys that if they need to sleep in the back of their car, they can. Um, I would have a strong reservation. Uh, if, if a young man wanted to marry my daughter and go into ministry and when I ask how he's going to pay the bills, he says, well, we're going to do faith-based ministry, just like George Mueller. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe I just don't have enough faith. Um, but you know, the other options are out there. They're biblical. I, I don't really get why you wouldn't tell, you wouldn't give people the opportunity to join you financially in your ministry. This is sharing the blessing. Why are you, why are you hogging all the blessing for yourself? Don't be so selfish and encourage uh, other people to join with you. Um, and then there's what I what I just called fake faith-based ministry. And this is because, you know, a lot of churches, a lot of um, Christian-like uh, scenes, tribes or denominations or whatever, they, they have weird ideas about money. And so you can't ask for money. And so what people do is they'll show up at a church and, and they'll say, this is what we're doing and we're excited about it. And, and then they'll say, and we're a faith-based ministry. And they kind of, period, you know, and, and it's kind of a code. Like, we need money, but we're not allowed to say it, you know. And um, maybe it's just how I'm wired or whatever, but I'm kind of just like, if you need money, tell me you need money, you know. Uh, tell me what the numbers are. Tell me what, you know, like I laid out earlier, like we need an extra 40%. Um, that goes to making sure our kids have braces and that when we retire, we're not showing up at your church and, and saying, you know, give us money because we don't have a retirement plan. Um, you know, lay it out. Um, be bold and, and figure it out. Uh, do your research. See what the Bible actually says about money and, and do it. Um, even George Mueller, and I've heard people, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I've heard people say that even George Mueller, I mean, he would publish a quarterly magazine where he would talk about the needs and he would mention casually where the finances of the institution were at. And he would, you know, I mean, people knew how to give to his ministry. Uh, people knew that there were needs. He didn't ask specifically, but, you know, it was out there. Um, you know, I... I know people that just go and, you know, do their work and they don't say anything to anybody. 
and they just expect money to show up, and usually it doesn't. Um, and they just use up their private resources, which, you know, if you want to do tent-making ministry, that's cool. But there's people that would, um, that would have invested in that ministry if they had just known. Um, and it takes courage. It is really hard to ask people for money in our culture. Uh, and as I mentioned before, but, you know, suck it up and do it. Uh, and especially to you men that have kids and have a wife, um, don't try and be some sort of super spiritual guy or don't try and hide behind religion. Provide for your kids, provide for your family by sucking it up um, and, you know, do the research in the Bible if you need to, but suck it up and ask people for money um, because, and, and don't hide behind this faith-based nonsense if you're, if you're just going to be hinting about money anyways because it just makes people uncomfortable. They don't know, you know, what to do with it. Um, you know, I show up, I have donation slips, I bring up the issue of money, uh, I make sure in a casual, no-pressure situation, which is important for me. I don't pressure people. Uh, I try hard not to, but I let people know how they can give if they want to give. And then I go home and I pray my heart out, for sure. Um, especially when, when funds are low. I mean, we, we pray. But, um, yeah, I maybe I'm sharing too much of my personal opinion here. I should be a good Canadian kind of, oh, it's all good, man. But, uh, I, yeah, there's kind of fake faith-based stuff that uh, if, if you need money, just ask me and uh, I'll give you a yes or a no. Um, hinting drives me nuts. First Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially the members of his own household, his own family, uh, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you need to make sure that we as men are providing. It's a big part of, of our spirituality, of our obedience to Christ. So... I do want to pray for us. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up a generation of goers and givers. And I pray, Lord, that the goers would go and the givers would give. And that the children and the wives, um, the wives also are goers. But I just pray that they would um, be protected and that they would be loved and that they would be well supported. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.